Evening, this is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with prison ministry. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, why are we talking about prison ministry and why is prison ministry so important? What does the Bible say about ministry to prisoners? Well, I've just come back from a ministry to prisoners, but the scripture describes the day of judgment in Matthew 25. Our Lord Jesus says, I was in prison and you came and visited me. And so the whole message of Matthew 25 is about sins of co-omission. We often focus on sins of commission, negative things we do, but the day of judgment is described by our Lord in Matthew 25 primarily in terms of judging us for sins of omission, good things we fail to do. And amongst the good things that we will be judged for is visiting those who are in prison. Now, the things the Lord mentions is I was naked and you clothed me, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink, I was sick and you cared for me, I was in prison and you visited me. So that's mentioned among high priorities that the Lord describes as how people be judged and have judgment. Then we've got a straightforward command in Hebrews 13 verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves in the body also. Any part of the body that suffers is going to affect the whole body. Now there are Christians in prison and you cannot stub your toe or have a toothache without the whole body experiencing it and being concerned about it. You can't say, well, you know, it's just my toe or just my tooth. And similarly, when one part of the body is suffering or restrained and imprisoned, it should bother all of us. And we should be visiting those in prison, particularly those who are believers. Um, you've just returned from a mission to Mpumalanga, which involved prison ministry, but this was not your first experience in prison ministry, was it? How did you end up in prison during previous missions across Africa? Yes, so uh, since 2007, I've been a regular guest lecturer at Back to the Bible Mission near Barberton. And this year, I was also invited to present a week of lectures on African church history and to present a discipleship course at their local prison near Barberton. Uh, back in 1987, I had my first prison experience in Zambia as a presidential detainee under the dictator Kenneth Kaunda in the Saka Central Prison. And uh, that was quite an introduction to prison ministry. I s I'm so glad it was a temporary ministry. It's one thing to have a temporary prison ministry. It's always nice when you're allowed to get out afterwards. And uh, in 1987, I was leading a frontline mission team of four of us. We were driving across Botswana, across the Kazungulu Ferry to enter into Zambia. The goal being to drive across the length of Zambia and enter Malawi from where we were going to deploy into Mozambique for ministry to the persecuted Christians in a communist Mozambique. And we didn't get any further than Kazangulu Ferry because we refused to pay a bribe. And before we knew it, we were being arrested, stripped, thrown into Livingston uh, police uh, jails and uh, being interrogated severely. And uh, before I knew it, I was being hooded, shackled, chained and uh, escorted all the way through to Zambia's capital, Lusaka, where we were beaten with rifle butts, prodded with rifle bayonets, and marched through the streets uh, sort of on display, and then thrown into real little hellhole in Lusaka Central Prison. As we went through the low little gates under the machine gun tower into this massive courtyard, just with thousands of people, it was like uh, a scene from a film, you're just astounded and the uh, immensity of it, we were just overwhelmed. And then we got to the cell, and the sun's setting, and it's dark. There's no electricity in the whole prison the whole time. And as we were put into the cell, the warden said, these are 
South African terrorist responsible for the murder of millions. You know, sort of basically open invitation, do with them what you want. And as we put into the cell, uh, door behind shut, there's no windows, there's absolutely no lighting, and pitch dark. Um, you can imagine I just started to preach the gospel because uh, I didn't know what we were facing. And uh, we made friends very quickly, and this is the detainee cell that we were thrown in. People there were engineers who were trained at Sandhurst Military Academy, but in there because they'd said uh, sanctions will hurt Zambia more than South Africa. And there's a businessman from Mali who was in prison. There was a truck driver from Soweto who had lent money to the ANC, but uh, refugees, but did not. Uh, obviously, they didn't want to pay back, so they just accused him of being a spy, which is easy thing to do in a one-party dictatorship. And instead of paying back uh, what they owed him, uh, they were able to get him falsely accused in prison, and he had been tortured severely. He had pussy sores all over his body where the police had put a red-hot iron in the fire like a poker and then pushed this red-hot uh, poker into his body, and so he had these pussy sores that would swell up and burst. And uh, so that was Isaiah Moyo. There was a Hindu man who had owned a mine, and the communist government had decided to confiscate it, so they just threw him in prison. I suppose that's expropriation without compensation. And all kinds of people in this cell, now all of them had one thing in common, all were presidential detainees, none of us had been charged, and none of us had a day in court, because we could be detained at the president's pleasure. And Lusaka Central Prison, I found, had been built by the British for 80 prisoners, and there were 1,200 there under the Zambian government. Now, Kenneth Kounda, interestingly enough, had once been a prisoner in Lusaka Central Prison, but when he was locked up there, the prison only had 80 people or less. He had a cell all to himself with bed and bedding and sheets and pillow, and uh, he had a settee, a couch, he had table, desk, bookshelves, a gramophone, um, and three cooked meals brought in every day. That was by the evil British colonials. But as Kenneth Gunder said, he didn't believe in the depravity of man like his Calvinist parents did. His parents were evangelists and had studied at Livingstonia in Malawi. No, he believed in the goodness of man. So he wasn't a Calvinist like his parents. He was a communist, and he believed in the depravity of man, the goodness of man. And so he had socialist humanism as the national ideology of Zambia. And as a result, here we were experiencing socialist humanism of someone who believed in the goodness of man. Most of the prisoners there were, were actually remand. You could tell because the prisoner who had been convicted in court was wearing the uniform of a prisoner. The rest who were remand, they're still waiting for the day in court. They hadn't been sentenced. They were wearing the normal civilian clothes that they'd entered in, the same clothes. You don't have a change of clothes in prison. And most of the prisoners there were remand prisoners. They hadn't had their day in court. One man I met and spoke to had been there eight years, and apparently the government had lost the witnesses. So he's still in prison, hadn't had his day in court eight years later. So how's that for the goodness of man? Now, forget about cooked meals. We didn't get... Um, three cooked meals a day brought into our cell. We didn't have beds. In fact, under the goodness of man's socialist humanism, Kenneth Gwinder, uh, there were no beds, no mattresses, no bedding, no sheets or pillows or anything like that. In fact, we were sleeping on the ground in filth and you had to lie on your side because there were 60 prisoners in a cell. Now, cells were 25 feet by 15 feet. Just imagine putting 60 people in an area 25 feet by 15 feet. It means there's no space for anyone to lie on their back. You can only lie on your side. 
if one person rolls over, everyone has to roll over. And it was it was filthy, it was stiflingly hot, corrugated iron roofs, no windows, no ventilation, and no plumbing, no electricity. When the sun sets, it's pitch dark. Now, we didn't have Bibles. Our Bibles had been taken away from us. So the only Bible we had was what we could memorize, and what we had in our memory we used for Bible studies. I led Bible studies every night, but it was all from memory, which was a good exercise because I didn't know how much I'd memorized until then. And the prison um, was a disease factory. You're talking about all the water that you need to wash, clean, drink had to be carried in buckets, and all the filth had to be carried out in other buckets. So, you know, it was one stinking disease factory, no running water. You can just imagine how filthy that could be. And the only food was once a day, a big cooking pot in the middle cooked a whole lot of starch, what we called sadza, or it's stiff porridge, basically. The only protein came from the flies that had flown into it. And there was no eating utensils. Forget about spoons and plates. There wasn't even a bowl. They literally dished up into people's hands and you had to lap it up like a dog. There was no proper eating utensils at all. It was actually quite disgusting condition. And in those prisons and those stifling cells, and you're talking about uh, tropical Africa, people died in the prison cells and were carried out at night uh, in the morning. So we were locked up from sunset to sunrise and the night hours were spent in the pitch dark. Fortunately, I kept things going with Bible studies, discussions, prayer and singing in our cells, so we made it interesting. And even though the prisoners had been told we were terrorists responsible for deaths of millions and basically they could do anything they wanted with us, uh, we made friends with others in the cell. And I mean, this one man who'd been a military um, uh, officer in the Zambian army, uh, he became a friend and was explaining how insane the whole situation was, how Kaunda was a one-party dictator. There was just one candidate, one party, and one box. It wasn't even a no box. It was just the yes box. Uh, so free elections in Zambia meant ticking the one box for the one candidate of the one party, which was Kenneth Kaunda, or KK as they called him. So we got a real introduction to socialist humanism. And forget about habeas corpus and all those rights business. You didn't have any of that. Um, so I had a bit of an experience in Lusaka Central. Every day at sunrise, we were allowed out of our cells. We could walk around the big courtyard. And I did many miles walking backwards and forwards for exiles. And when people wanted counseling, I'd say, walk with me. And we'd walk backwards and forwards. And we did what we could to keep some exiles and keep healthy in the cell. And in the cells, we'd do push-ups and so on. And out in the courtyard, we'd walk up and down. I did several open-air preachings and very good responses. And after a while, every time I stood up to preach, special branch would come through the gate and arrest me, uh, take me in handcuffs off for interrogation. And these interrogations could last five to six hours. And it would be a matter of being able to um, get information out of me. So they want to know names, contacts, things like that in Mozambique. I would have in front of me, uh, they'd, they'd show things that I'd written and ask, what I thought about Desmond Tutu or Nelson Mandela. And I say, what has that to do with the law of Zambia? Have I broken any laws in Zambia or am I here because I've broken a law or because of something I've written? And I sort of get a hit over the head and, um, you know, answer the question, what do I think about Kenneth Kond and socialist humanism and sanctions on South Africa? Well, most of my answers didn't please them. And, you know, the Americans speak about waterboarding. Well, water would have been nice. 
because they didn't have anything as clean and nice as water. It was more like um, heads and buckets of urine. So, you know, absolutely disgusting, filthy, degrading. And we had no access to soap and um, plumbing. You know, it's not like you could have a shower or something like that. When I came out of the prison, ultimately, uh, we first washed in the Zambezi River. And, and then every time I had an opportunity, I bathed uh, over and over until even at put Desil in the bath. It took quite a while before I felt that I was clean again. The, the conditions there were absolutely degrading and disgusting. So that, in fact, after the first night in jail in Livingston, I counted 60 mosquito bites on one foot. And that was just one foot. Who knows how much of the angry relief map on my body, how many insect bites had all over the body. But it was quite disease factory. Well, we did singing in the cells and we did witnessing and people came to Christ. It was a great opportunity. We also made friends of the future government of Zambia. I didn't realize, but the next government of Zambia was in our cells. So um, when the communists were overthrown, finally, um, Frederick Chalupa, who I didn't personally meet, but he was in Lusaka Central at that time, he was a union leader and he um, was a prisoner under Kenneth Kunda. Well, he, he became the first president of the Free Zambia afterwards. But I did make friends with General Godfrey Meander, who was also locked up as a detainee. So General Godfrey Meander, who became Vice President and Minister of Education, um, he was a friend we made because of sharing time in Lusaka Central Prison. And it was interesting that I went from being a prohibited immigrant PI to being a um, VIP, being ushered past customs and all of that when I came back as a guest speaker to take conferences and speak on radio and TV in Zambia. So Lusaka was my first experience, but in 1989 I was captured by Soviet troops in northern Mozambique and imprisoned in Mashava's security prison in Mozambique, in Maputo. And I was then leading an American medical team of six people, and that was quite an experience. Uh, we were put in a disgusting prison, Mashava's security prison as mentioned in Amnesty International and Human Rights Reports of International Society of Human Rights, place of torture, the SNASP security police were trained by the East Germans and uh, Stasi were oversights of them. And uh, we were on a mission ministering in free Mozambique and the Renoma-controlled liberated areas and made a wrong turn, ended up being arrested, captured and escorted by MI-8 HIP helicopters by Soviet pilots and finally detained in Mishava's security prison. My first interrogation, I was walked down a corridor into a room that looked like a hardware store. There were so many different um, tools on the table and uh, the chair that you had to sit in was an armchair with leather straps for the arms and leather straps for the ankles. So that sort of gives you a bad impression. There was a big battery there, car battery with crocodile clips and wires. So if we were to be charged, it was going to be with electricity. They obviously weren't dependent on Eskom. They had independent electricity with their batteries. And the first thing that this interrogator said to me is, I am the devil. Well, how do you respond to that? So I said, well, I'm a Christian. And uh, he spat out, I hate Christians. And when I said to him, you're not the devil, he said, oh, I am a, the devil. He said, I was trained, I'm not just a Marxist and a Leninist, I'm a Stalinist. I was trained in Czechoslovakia. So he is very adamant and hostile, so... He started off with a long tirade against Margaret Thatcher and her conservative policies. She was the prime minister in England at the time, and I had a British passport. So I gave a, a lecture on 
um, the uh, economic policies of Margaret Thatcher, and he gave a lecture on the French Revolution, so I gave a lecture on the Reformation and what was wrong with the French Revolution. So he gave a lecture on uh, Ronald against Ronald Reagan. I gave a positive one there. And so we swapped lectures for about six hours. And at one point, I'm, I'm seeing the clock behind him and thinking, this is great. I can argue history with a person all day. That's much nicer than having my fingernails ripped out or being waterboarded. So um, at the end of six hours, he, he, he declared the interview over. Well, um, one of the more interesting things was he said that Jesus is the first communist. Jesus taught from each according to his ability to each according to his need. So I thought that was a quote from Karl Marx. I remember what Jesus said, you've got to love your neighbors yourself and you've got to love your enemy. And I don't see that from the communist side. And when he carried on that the early church were the first communists and they had the death penalty for not sharing your property, I had to point out there's a world of difference between saying what's mine is yours and sharing and saying what's yours is mine and confiscating. There's a big difference between Christian voluntary generosity and communist compulsory confiscation. And if communists really believed that Jesus was the first communist, why do they fight against him? If they really believed the Bible taught communism, uh, why do they ban it? And so... You know, that's just the kind of way the debate went. And I must say, if people think history doesn't matter, I think history saved me my fingernails and a whole lot of things because I could argue history with this man so he's interested in the debate. And communists understand history and they're very interested in history. It's the basis of their religion, of atheism. So people who don't think history matters, let me tell you, it's so much nicer to spend your interrogation time arguing history with the interrogator than um enduring the kind of tortures that they specialize in. So I had quite an experience. The cell that I was in was so small, if I lay on the floor, and of course there's no furniture, I could touch each wall with one hand extended. I could touch the other walls with my toes and my head. So literally, if I stretched out, um, I could touch each of the four walls simultaneously. That's how small the cell was. But there was a bit of a gap under the door, and that was, I think, to let the rats in and out. Because I woke up at one point to a horrible smell and I opened my eyes and I could see this rat sniffing at my nose, felt his whiskers on my face. And this rat had literally slipped in under the door and uh, that was about the only companion I ever had in the cell. And some things on the walls were a bit disturbing. Some people had scratched in there. I have not eaten in 138 days and um, I have been here for, and people mentioned how many months, and there was a picture of a cross, there was a picture of a, a, a fish, and uh, other Christian symbols, and uh, Lord help me, and uh, Lord deliver me, these sort of things, some of it was scratched in, was probably fingernails, so I knew I wasn't the first Christian in these cells, and probably wouldn't be the last, and one night we woke up to screams of one of the paramedic nurses who was part of our team from America, screaming that the men in this cell and dragging them out. And we felt so helpless. We were screaming and praying, calling on God to protect them. And after a while, they were able to say, it's all right. They've gone and uh, we're safe. And we sang. And you can imagine a sense of helplessness being in this situation themselves. And we were uh, regularly played games where they tried good cop, bad cop. And um, you're about to be released and then uh, suddenly thrown back in the cells again. And so they played mind games with us and we had all sorts of interrogation techniques. But um, at the end of that, I was finally released in a very amusing way, which shows the difference between Americans and, uh, and the British. One day, 
we were driven in the back of what looked like a rubbish truck uh, downtown to some office and as we walked in there, there was a, a very smart woman dressed in an immaculate suit with long blonde hair and she said, well, who are the Americans? And six people raised their hands and there's lots of hugs and embraces and shrieks and laughter and as they went down the hallway, she was saying, well, let's get to the American Embassy for a shower and uh, some hamburgers, words like that. And then there was a man in a pinstripe suit and he said, and who's the British gentleman? Well, I looked around and I was the only person there who wasn't wearing camouflage and carrying an AK-47, but I raised my hand and he came over, shook my hand, he said, had a spot of bother, have you? Well, let's get the British Embassy for a cup of tea. And on the way there, we stopped at the corner of Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin Street, and he said, I want to show you something, and walked to the back of the um, embassy, and there was a plaque on the side of the wall saying, after Winston Churchill escaped from the Boers, in 1900, he sought sanctuary at the British consul here in Lorenzo Marx. And so he said, who knows, Mr. Hammond, one day we may have a plaque up here for you. So I raised my eyebrows and he said, oh, yes, Mr. Hammond, we know all about you. We must get you out of here very quickly before they realize who they've had. And there'd been quite a drama. Lots of newspapers overseas had been writing about Peter Hammond, the main support of Renamo and all of this of the anti-communist resistance in the hands of Mozambique and fortunately the Mozambique security forces had made a mistake reading my passport my first name is Peter my second name is Christopher and that takes quite a long space I took the first line Hammond is on the second line so the whole way along I've been called Mr. Christopher and Peter Christopher and will Peter Christopher come forward and I didn't correct them so there's someone missed my surname and that was just as well. And they didn't seem to realize that I was the leader of the group. We had the older man, who's a medical doctor, uh, be the spokesman of the group, and he wasn't known by them. I had a letter in my correspondence back at home on a letterhead of Department of Justice, Ministry of, of, of Cults and Religions, signed by the minister, you come back to Mozambique, we will kill you, addressed to me personally because of my Mozambique report, which had exposed the communist atrocities and burning of churches and murdering of Christians, bayoneting of babies, burning of Bibles and so on. And this had been translated into different languages, including in Norwegian and read before the Norwegian parliament. It had led to cutting off of aid to them. In fact, my Mozambique report had even been read into the congressional record in America by Senator Jesse Helms of the Foreign Affairs Committee and had led to a withdrawal of, Moz of aid from America to Mozambique. So I really had enemies in the governments of Mozambique and uh, this imprisonment could have ended far more disastrously or fatally for me, especially with journalists uh, broadcasting my accomplishments and all the rest that didn't particularly help. So I experienced quite a bit in there, including meeting other people who'd been prisoners for quite a while. In my book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, I even give a story of some South African reconnaissance commander, people who were locked up in the Chavez security prison whose details are memorized and got their details published later, and how we got Azar Moya out of prison in, in um, Lusaka Central. Uh, when I went on my first speaking tour overseas, I was able to get in the British BBC World Service, and speaking on the BBC World Service, I gave Azar's testimony, and Azar later said that the wardens came running into a cell with a shortwave radio saying, Azar, Azar, those white South African missionaries who were in here with you, they're on the radio talking about you. And as I was able to get the last minutes of this interview, which included me giving his address, 
how people could send parcels uh, to Isaiah and the sort of things people need in prison. So Isaiah said he started to get mail sacks of parcels and letters coming into him, and he was sent salt and sugar and soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes and uh, pens and paper and sweets and all sorts of good things, books. And he became the most popular person in Lusaka Central Prison. And he became a bit of a celebrity and the prison guards started to treat him well and nobody mistreated him anymore. And in time he was let free. And, you know, what we bind will be bound, what we loose will be loosed and the prison doors were opened and he was set free. And so the joy of seeing some people that we campaigned for released afterwards got me involved in more prison ministry, realizing the importance of getting Bibles and books to the prisoners. Later, I was even contacted by a representative of Kenneth Gondor's government wanting me to come back to Zambia that he could apologize for our mistreatment. And uh, I responded to his foreign affairs spokesman, I understand how this works. Politicians need um, publicity to improve their public relations. Well, if he wants to use me, I want to use him. I'm happy to come back to Zambia, but only on condition I'm allowed to go back to the Saka Central Prison. And I can't go back with empty hands. I must be able to deliver to the people soap and salt and sugar and sweets and paper and pens and books and so on, some foodstuffs. And uh, ultimately, I was given permission to do that, and that was a joy, but uh, what an opportunity. Uh, what was also good with my Zambian invite was, and I give the whole story in the Frontline Behind Me Lines for Christ book, when we were interviewed on TV, I noticed it was a live program, and there's the red light, and I'm being interviewed live. So I decided to use the opportunity to expose Condor. So when the interviewing lady on ZNBC, Zambian National Broadcasting, asked, so I suppose this is a very different experience from your last time you were in Zambia. I said, yes, indeed, much nicer. The first time we came here, we were arrested for refusing to pay a bribe at Cousin Gulli Ferry, uh, thrown into a disgusting disease factory of a cell covered in human waste with hundreds of mosquitoes all over the walls, and explained being hooded, shackled, chained, dragged through the streets while we're singing, this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, and thrown into a prison that the British had made for 120, uh, for 80 people, but now 1,200 were in a prison. And unlike Kondo, who received three cooked meals a day in his own prison cell, we had 60 people crammed into every cell, and only one meal a day, and it was only starch and no protein, no vegetables, no fruit. And I carried on with people dying in the cells, and most of them were remanded, had never even been um, having the day in court. So I gave a whole lot without taking a breath, knowing that there wouldn't be much opportunity. But, uh, you know, the horror on her face showed that she realized she was in trouble. But I managed to deliver a whole lot of information about how evil and and corrupt the Zambian government was under Gondor and how their secular humanism was actually a very cru cruel system and how many people were suffering under it. So I got my own back to a degree and Gondor was overthrown in the country before the end of the year. And I'm glad we could play a part in that uh, to remove that secular socialist government and remove the humanist policies because when Frederick Chaluba became the next president of Zambia, he officially declared Zambia a Christian country and organized a day of repentance and prayer. So it was a magnificent change that we saw there. So this led me, my prison experience in Zambia and Mozambique, to be more interested in providing prisoners with literature and visiting prisons. And I've had the opportunity over the years to be able to minister in prisons in several countries and organize vast amounts of literature, including um, Bible correspondence courses, library programs, where a prisoner can write just, we'll send him a book, 
he does a review of the book, we'll send him another book, and these books become his to keep as a library. And so we've got a correspondence program going into prisons now for quite a while. This is a wonderful opportunity to actually uh, be back in a prison uh, in Barberton amongst these very needy people. Mm, Dr. Hammond, so, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Barberton, now about 34 years since uh, Machava Security Prison and a little bit to the west um, of <laughs> Machava. Uh, how did that come about? How did you end up um, with the latest meeting? And Well, because of our long-standing relationship with Back to the Bible Mission, who've had an ongoing ministry into local prisons there, uh, they had delivered and distributed some of my books to the prisoners. And so some of the prisoners who'd read my books, like Old Testament Survey and so on, specifically requested that I come and present a discipleship course for their people. And Back to the Bible Mission um, went through all the different work to make it possible because you can imagine there's a lot of protocol and application security requirements. Well, Dr. Elrisa Mulder has devoted herself for the last 20 years to ministering to prisoners, and she went through all the hard work of going through, filling out the forms and uh, doing the applications, getting the necessary official permission for me to enter and for the course to be run and then to designate a hall. We had a dining hall that we could use as our venue and to run this discipleship program. So there's a lot of security and every guest must be authorized, passed through layers of security. And of course, there's numerous searches and checks on the way into the cells. But um, by God's grace, that all happened. Why were you up in Mpumalanga? Well, um, I was invited to conduct a series of lectures on church history at the Back to the Bible Mission. I've been a faculty member as a guest lecturer since 2007, going there every year. And... Uh, it was scheduled for quite a while that I'd be there uh, in June, and they requested could I come a few days earlier to minister for three days in the Barberton Medium B prison, and that was a real privilege. Um, how did you go about ministering to the prisoners up there? What kind of people did you meet, and what kind of crimes were they <laughs> in for? Yes, well, actually, uh, Tanya Reza said to me, Auntie Reza said, you know, we don't ask people what they're in for, well, I wasn't quite that polite. I asked people, and they were very happy to tell me. But uh, the prisoners have very well-organized church. They call it Amazing Grace Church. Interestingly, the man who ran uh, the church in his prison, uh, Richard, um, has uh, uh, he's a very enthusiastic, cheerful man. He is a great translator. Everything I said had to be translated because many of the people there did not speak English. And uh, uh, he was in for murdering his wife and the man she is having an affair with. Uh, using his police pistol. I think he's a colonel in the police. And uh, uh, he just uh, shot them all, both dead. And so he was in for 13 years. He's coming up by the end of this year, God willing. His co-pastor Lloyd, a Zimbabwean, who's in for murder and robbery, came and warmly embraced me, happy to meet a fellow Rhodesian. He told me there's 20 Zimbabweans in the prison. And uh, everyone in this very unusual congregation has an interesting story. And so you can imagine we had times of... Great, enthusiastic praise and worship. Very enthusiastic singers. Uh, I was there for the Friday, the Saturday, and then Sunday we had worship service together. And um, Yes, I, I met a lot of these uh, people and they've all got very intriguing testimonies and stories. Um, were there quite a few murderers? Quite a lot, yes. Hmm. What did you choose to speak on to well, these prisoners? Well, it was a the of course, they wanted me to present, and they entitled it Living Testimony. So I gave, first of all, the testimony of Anthony Stunder, the chairman of the Board of Frontline Fellowship, who served as a paratrooper during the war in Angola and afterwards fell into a life of crime, which included a bank robbery. 
He, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and incarcerated in a maximum security prison, Zondervas uh, up in, near Pretoria in Transvaal, where he came to Christ. And I gave his testimony, and I was also able to give each prisoner who attended our course a copy of his booklet, Prison Break, which is outstanding, uh, very vibrant, a victorious Christian testimony of how he went through his time in the army in the war in Angola and how he uh, became a bank robber and how he became a Christian in prison. Uh, I then also relate the testimony of Lawrence Temphoy, another friend who came to Christ in prison in Zambia. Lawrence had stolen from Standard Bank where he was a clock. And in prison, he read the book From Prison to Praise uh, and he surrendered his life to Christ. Well, after completing his sentence, Lawrence worked to save up enough money to repay the bank what he had stolen while he's working for them. Now, legally, under the laws of Zambia, he wasn't required to do that. Lawrence had done the crime and now he had done the time. No more was required of him from the prison or the government or the courts. However, as a Christian, he saw what God required. God required restitution. So you can imagine what a tremendous testament it must have been to the bank. And Lawrence went on to head up prison fellowship in Zambia, and now he's running Jubilee. I also relate the testimony of our good friend George Ush, who stole a fortune in diamonds while he was walking for the diamond fields, De Beers. Although he got away with it without any detection, when he is converted to Christ, he is convicted by the Holy Spirit, he must confess his crime to the company and do restitution. So he sold his farm and his house and car and returned the fruits of his ill-gotten gains. Well, since then, uh, George Ush was... Um, entrusted with a dynamic ministry in Quest Bunch Mission at Morrison, just outside of the Cape. I followed up these life-transforming testimonies with teaching on how to reclaim surrendered ground with a big emphasis on restitution. And it was also appropriate to share my present experiences in Zambia and Mozambique, and uh, they were fascinated with all these insights and to learn that bad as it was in their prison, their prison was still vastly better than uh, what I'd experienced in either Maputo or up in Lusaka. On another day, I presented two men went up to the temple to pray, uh, how the Lord described the difference between the Pharisee who prayed to himself for the self-congratulatory list on all his accomplishments, and the publican or the tax collector who just stood at a far distance, beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And how the Lord Jesus said that um, the publican who was repentant, he went... Uh, to his home justified. But um, the Pharisee was praying to himself. God didn't even listen to his prayer. He was just, he wasn't in any way humble, repentant, or thankful to God or confessing. He was just listing a whole list of self congratulatory uh, achievements, which he thought um, uh, really impressed him and should impress God. And God uh, said he was not, God didn't listen to his prayers, and God certainly didn't forgive him. Well, and then preached on a Sunday on the book of Philemon, set free to serve Christ. And the prisoners who attended these disciple courses were given lecture notes on each of the presentations, and we had precious times of prayer. At the Sunday morning worship service, every prisoner was presented with a signed certificate for having completed the course, which Auntie Eloisa organized. The prisoners really were grateful. You could just see the attentiveness was great. You know, when you see people hang on every word, they were really appreciative that we cared enough to visit them and to enrich their lives. And um, many were uh, saying they wanted to write to us and wanting to have my email address. Apparently, prisoners do have access to some, sometimes the library and to a computer to send uh, messages and, and communicate with people. 
a lot better than what I had in Osaka and Maputo, you can be sure. Did, they, did the prisoners have to uh, complete any exams? The um, there, there were Bible memory verses and all that. Mm. Um, what kind of needs do the prisoners have? How can we best pray for these prisoners? Well, obviously, they miss the outside world and they miss the freedoms that we take for granted. I must say, since my short prison experiences, um, I've appreciated freedom and fresh air and the outdoors and seeing the mountain and a, a clean uh, sheet and a clean pillowcase. And I really appreciate warm showers in the morning and things like that. When I do get warm showers, that is. Um, it's important that they redeem the time by reading and seeking to improve themselves and to prepare themselves when they're free. They really appreciate correspondence. They really appreciate Bible reading materials. Um, I know when I was in prison, when any book we had was devoured with great enthusiasm. And these people are so enthusiastic with books. The amount of people I met there who had read my books or could you know, ask me questions about things that they'd read in some obscure chapter, they, they read, they re seek to redeem the time, they're trying to improve their minds. So I think providing them with literature, Bibles and uh, writing materials is very helpful. And if we can be a pen pal and correspond with prisoners or visit them, it means a lot to them. Some people never get prisoners. I mean, one man we spoke to, um, he said he's got no family outside and he hasn't had a visitor in 13 years. I mean, can you imagine? So um, I think a visit or uh, a letter uh, means enormous amounts of prisoners. How can one help um, people who have come out of prison to better integrate, reintegrate? I think the first thing is to provide work opportunities and church fellowships and Bible study groups that would welcome them. When you come out of prison, one of the biggest problems is most companies don't want to hire an ex-con. And so somebody who's willing to take a chance and employ them in some job which they can uh, prove themselves on and develop a healthy habit and work ethic, that's very helpful. Now, there are some jobs given to people in prisons. And some of them do learn some skills in prisons. And in fact, there's a lot of study opportunities provided if they want. So you can do some UNISA and other courses in prisons. And uh, some of the prisoners come out really, really keen. And of course, if they evangelize, disciple, on-fire Christians, which some are, they might be a real asset to a company. But many people aren't willing to take the chance of giving an ex-convict a job. So if one's able to provide jobs, or if you know people who might be willing to, putting them in touch with that would really, really help. Are there books or other resources that you would recommend that can help one to better understand and effectively minister to prison? Yes, certainly. Well, certainly Prison Break by Anthony Stunder would really help you get an insight. And Tortured for Christ by Richard Vaughan That's a classic. From Prison to Praise by Merlin Carruthers. These are all books that had a big impact with me. And I've got a few chapters in my book, Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, and my prison experiences in Zambia and Mozambique. And when we were arrested in Sudan and um, told we were going to get shot the next day and some of our arrest experience interrogations in Zimbabwe. So you can learn quite a lot from the Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book. But all of these books you can get from Christian Liberty Books, www.christianlibertybooks.co.za. Prison to Praise, Prison Break, Tortured for Christ, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. How can listeners go about ministering to prisoners in their areas? Well, assist prison chaplains and prison fellowship. There is a prison fellowship in South Africa, for example. Uh, volunteer your time to a ministry which visits and ministers to prisoners in your area. I know there's different groups like Kairos and so on in South Africa too. Provide good gospel and discipleship materials. Correspond with prisoners. 
obtain gospel and discipleship literature from literature for Africa. We can provide all kinds of study aids and books and Bibles that can enable you to have a dynamic prison ministry, even if you're only doing it by correspondence or sending an apostle with someone else who's visiting. But there are prisons in all of our areas, and these prisoners are a sort of captive audience, if you like. And so I know, for example, the um, the young family who have a tremendous evangelistic ministry, Chalk Talk artists, they have even gone in on Christmas Day into the prison and celebrate Christmas with prisoners uh, instead of having a family day. Uh, so there's so many ways that you can show your love and concern for prisoners and should add people in hospitals too. Um, we've gone sometimes to the local children's hospital on Christmas Eve because any child locked in there over Christmas Eve can't have any family to go to and to go in there and give them some Christmas presents and to pray with them and sing with them and give them literature that will um, alleviate the boredom and give them real good Christian input, that's always appreciated. And what about those who are imprisoned for their faith? How can we better mobilize prayer and action on behalf of Christians who are being persecuted? Well, that's so important because in 66 countries in the world, Christianity is persecuted by governments. So there are many countries in the world where the Bible is forbidden and there are 400 million Christians in the world who are living under persecution by their state. And we need to be praying for them. Of course, the worst would be in places like Red China and North Korea and Saudi Arabia. But we need to pray for the persecuted. We need to uh, support ministries to the persecuted churches like Open Doors that Brother Andrew started, Voice of the Martyrs, which was started by Richard Vaughan, Frontline Fellowship, our mission. We've been going 41 years serving persecuted churches. And we can support the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, or IDOP. We've set up the www.idop-africa.org website, www.idop, short for International Day of Prayer, at hyphenafrica.org. And this year it's the 12th of November. So the second Sunday in November every year is set aside for an International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, when we encourage churches to inform and educate their congregation on the needs of the Persecuted Church and mobilize prayer and support for them. So this year it's coming up on 12th of November. Let's see what we can do. You can learn a lot by just visiting the idop-africa.org website. We've got videos, audios, PowerPoints, presentations, uh, some PDF books, a whole lot of very useful materials. I've written books like Sudan, uh, Faith Undefined Sudan, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, uh, In the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Holocaust and Rwanda. Bill Bathman wrote Going Through and Going On on Dealing with the Persecuted Church. The classic is Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormrandt, which is also a film. I showed that film during our uh, mission to Mpumalanga now. A very good film, very well made by Romanian friends. And uh, I would strongly recommend uh, that we mobilize our churches to pray for the persecuted because when you remember people less fortunate than ourselves, it puts our own problems into perspective. For us not just to be uh, concerned with um, our daily problems, but to be concerned with, uh, as the scripture says, remember the persecuted um, as uh, those who mistreated, uh, as you yourself in the body also. Uh, Dr. Hammond, before we wrap up, can you just clarify something for the listeners uh, relating to what your narrative about uh, your experiences in um, Lusaka um, prison? Uh, you talked about how most of the prisoners were remand prisoners, and then you also mentioned that there was no such thing as habeas corpus. Can you please just explain the connection? Right, so... Um, it should be that if you're arrested, you are not denied justice. Justice must be done, justice must be seen to be done, and you're meant to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. 
habeas corpus is a term in the Latin meaning, I have a body, and that uh, uh, they don't have the right to detain you without uh, being charged and having a fair chance in court promptly to defend yourself. Therefore, if they can't produce the witnesses and uh, have a court case against you and have you duly convicted in open court, you must be out on bail. They, they cannot continue to detain you without cause, without legal um, proceedings, and there must be due process. And if you've been denied that process, you shouldn't be locked up. So the idea that people could be locked up without ever having their day in court mm. is a violation of the principle of you're innocent until proven guilty. Mm. And balance of proof should be on the state. And if state can't prove your guilt, you shouldn't be locked up. So it should be axiomatic that in any free state, you shouldn't have people who have not been duly charged and had the opportunity to defend themselves against clear charges and first-hand witnesses in court. They should not be locked up at all. And it looks like it's a failure of the state and uh, the people were just forgotten about and you know, almost like the man in the iron mask sort of thing. You just kept in, in detention without any um, a real due process that, prove that you were guilty of some actual breach of the law. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for bringing uh, our attention to the plight of prisoners and for um, relating your past and present experiences with ministering to prisoners. I mean, closing, let's read um, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night.